Chances are fairly good if you have small children or grandchildren. Currently under the age of, well, let's say 15, you no doubt have had to sit through the movie Frozen. It came out in 2013. Connie, a few years ago when she was back in Michigan for the birth of one of our grandchildren, uh, had to sit through that movie every single day because my oldest son's daughter, Ashlyn, had to watch that movie every single day. It's an animated Disney production that was inspired by Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, The Snow Queen. It was years in the making. It cost Disney about $150 million to make, but in the end it was money well spent because it has grossed at the box office $1.276 billion. And by the way, that doesn't count all of the books, costumes, and other items that they made from the movie. And for those of you who are Frozen fans, the sequel is coming out the 22nd of November, 2019. Critics and the public loved the movie. It won a number of awards, and, and to this day, it remains a very popular film. The most popular song from that film is the song, Let It Go. It won the Academy Award for Best Original Song, and it contains the following lyrics. Now think about them. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, and no rules for me. I'm free. With all due respect to the songwriters, who were a husband and wife team, that stanza has got to be among the stupidest line ever written. I want you to listen to the words again. Now think about the implications of this. It's time to see what I can do. It's to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, and no rules for me. I'm free. That is absolute nonsense. And yet, tragically, those lines capture the sentiments of many within our culture. Today, people are trying to throw off the restraints that parents put upon children. Uh, schools try to put upon students. Society tries to put upon its citizenry. And people are forever trying to break through any last vestige of rule and regulation or standards or laws in our modern world. And freedom is defined as a lack of rules where there is no right or wrong. When in fact, that kind of thinking leads to absolute moral anarchy. Today, through the medium of television, music, films, and books, the internet, and the radio, we are being told that we can do whatever we want, all in the name of freedom. And the end result is we are today drowning in a cesspool of filth. And what's sad is that that thinking has made its way into the mindset of Christians, to the point where Christian freedom is being abused. 
And Christians are engaged in behavior that, well, that's unacceptable. And they do it all the while marching under the banner or the flag of Christian liberty. And whenever anyone challenges them, that person is shunned and criticized. They're said to be straight-laced, narrow, legalistic, busybodies. They're ignorant, they're budinskis, they're pious hypocrites, and the, the list of pejorative terms goes on and on. And what's happened is that there is now today within the church a, a polarization of people, and there's a, a battle going on over what is considered acceptable behavior and what is not. And again, there's two extremes. On the one hand, you have people who have a, a long list of do's and don'ts and others who seemingly have thrown off any sense, of law, uh, any sense of law and order. And they do whatever they want. And so what I want to do this morning, as we look at three verses from the book of Galatians, is after we look at those verses, I want to offer hopefully some guidelines regarding how you and I should conduct ourselves as Christians. I want to talk about, well, what are doubtful things? Things that in Scripture that are neither black nor white, but they are admittedly gray. Things that are not necessarily addressed in Scripture. And it never fails that whenever you begin to talk about limits, and restraints, and rules, and regulations, when you use words like control and govern, inevitably there are people who push back, usually the immature. Because the last thing people want is being told what to do. Their cry is the cry of Patrick Henry, who said, give me liberty or give me death. They say, I want my freedom. I want my freedom at any cost. No one is going to tell me what I can and cannot do. And if so-and-so doesn't like it, that's their problem. They need to grow up. I love what one man said. Modern man wants a free hand, a free reign, and a free lunch. And that's true. Now, your Bible should be open to Galatians chapter 5. And I want to look at verses 13 down through verse 15. Just again to remind you of the background and the context, Paul, throughout this letter, has been ringing the bell of Christian liberty. He's done so in response to false teachers who came into that region of Galatia after Paul visited there, and they challenged Paul's teaching. Paul went there on his first missionary journey, and he met with great success, and churches were established in the various cities. And after he left that region, false teachers came in and they were trying to bring these relatively new, vulnerable, highly impressionable baby Christians under the law of Moses. They said, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And when Paul got wind of that, he sat down and dictated a letter that at the end he authenticated with his own hand. And in the course of that letter, he says again and again, you are not under the law, you're under grace. That is the theme of this letter. He says the law is a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ that you might be justified, that you might be declared righteous by grace through faith. And now, he says as a Christian, 
You're under grace. Legalism, a list of do's and don'ts for how you are to be saved or how you are to become spiritual, have no place in the life of the Christian or in the church. And Paul has been hammering away at this issue verse after verse and chapter after chapter. And when you come to verse 13 of chapter 5, Paul deals with a potential criticism that, it, that could easily have been leveled against what he was saying. Namely, Paul, Paul, you're preaching and teaching unrestrained liberty. And that's the problem with grace. It leads to an I-can-do-whatever-I-please mentality. What Paul is going to say is that's not true. In fact, look at verse 13. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. That's the thesis of this chapter, or verse, this paragraph rather. He says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. Paul does not deny the value and the blessing of liberty. But he says that Christian liberty has its restraints. He says, you're free. And that raises the question, what are we free from? Well, you and I, by faith in Jesus Christ and by virtue of the fact that we've been brought into the family of God, have been given a freedom from the overwhelming power of sin. You never before had that. You never had the capacity to say no. You were enslaved to the me-first principle. You were given freedom from the bondage that was yours to Satan and his demonic forces. You've been free from the commands of, of Satan to obey the commands of Christ, and you've been equipped to do that by the indwelling Spirit of God. You're free from condemnation. You're free from eternal punishment. Tonight, when you lay your head on your pillow and you go to sleep, you don't have to worry as a Christian about that fact that someday in eternity, God the eternal judge is going to crack the gavel and say, you're guilty. You're condemned for all eternity. As a child of God by faith in Christ, you're free from eternal judgment. That ought to let you sleep well at night. You're free to live without guilt, without fear, without an accusing conscience that so many people today have. Wondering, have I done enough to merit God's favor, God's love, and God's forgiveness? You're also free as a Christian to come boldly to the Father in prayer. And friend, that's just a, a partial list of the things that you've been freed from and, and moved into. Now, how extensive is this freedom? To, to who does it extend? Well, he says, it extends to my brothers and sisters in Christ. He's addressing Christians. He's not talking to the Baptist or the Bible church movement or the Presbyterians or the Methodists or the Lutherans. He's talking to those in the family of God. And he's saying every person who's trusted Christ as their Savior, regardless of their level of maturity or growth, has been granted freedom in Christ. No one has more freedom than another. Now, if I am free, 
Can I do then whatever I please? Can I let it all hang out and run wild? You know, it's the whole argument of Romans 6. God forgives me when I sin. Grace is unlimited. Therefore, the best thing I could do to demonstrate God's grace, God's love, and God's forgiveness is go out and sin, sin, sin. And believe it or not, there are people who have bought into that nonsense. There's even a preacher who has done so, which is unbelievably disturbing. And Paul says in Romans 6, God forbid. He says, may it never be. That kind of thinking is deceptive bondage. And he's saying, grow up in your liberty. It's not the idea that no one is going to tell me what I can and cannot do. That really is a problem of pride. He says, freedom is not going out there and doing your own thing. It's not an if it feels good, do it. He says, there are limits. There are restraints. First of all, he says, negatively, you were called to freedom, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Two words need to be understood there. First of all, the word flesh. You have a modern translation, some of it render properly, the sinful nature. In other words, we don't give in to that fallen, sinful nature that everybody has. That inclination to sin, that disposition to evil. So freedom does not mean that your fallen, sinful nature has a freedom to express itself. He's saying don't abuse that beautiful liberty by giving in to your inclinations and your desires to sin. By the way, just for the record and the sake of complete disclosure, everyone has a sinful nature. Becoming a Christian does not mean you eradicate your sinful nature. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. You can read about it in verses 16 and following of this chapter. I I somewhat come unglued when I hear people say, well, you know, people are basically good. No, they're not. People are basically sinful. They're basically selfish. Now, it is true that by God's common grace and the restraint of the Holy Spirit in our world, people are not as bad as they might be. And once more, people, by God's common grace, on occasion, do some wonderful things. So it's not to say that the unbeliever can't do things that are good and noble and virtuous. The other word you have to really grapple with is that word indulge. It's a military term. It speaks of a base of operation from which an offensive is launched. And what Paul is saying here is don't allow the flesh to twist and misuse that glorious liberty that we have to establish a beachhead from which it can launch an offensive strike into your life. Well, having given the negative, notice that he gives the positive. He says, we're not to indulge the flesh, but rather we are to serve one another humbly in love. It's a very, very strong statement in the Greek language. Your life and mine is not to be self-centered, but other person 
centered. And he says, I want you to serve one another. It's the Greek word from which we get our word bond slave. And he's saying that Christian liberty allows you to be a slave to one another. It's a reciprocal pronoun where we give back and forth, where we love one another, where we serve one another. And he goes back and forth and back and forth. It's in the present tense. It's talking about continuous action. By the way, isn't it ironic that having urged his readers not to become slaves to the law or to the sinful nature, Paul now encourages us to be a slave to one another. You know why? Slavery to the sinful nature is self-destructive, but slavery to one another is a source of deep joy and satisfaction in your life. And the Galatians, sadly, were failing miserable in that area. That's why he says what he says in verse 6. He says, if you bite and destroy, or bite and devour each other, watch out, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. The problem was that there was a, a, a spiritual cannibalism that was taking place in the church there. And he says that what we're supposed to do instead is we're to care for one another. Why? Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. You care for the other person. You love that person. And again, verse 15 suggests that the legalism that was introduced into that church there by false teachers had brought with it a destructive spirit into the church. No charge for this next point, but it's a good one. Write it down. Conflict and disunity are most common in legalistic churches because you can never focus on serving one another. What you're focused on doing is telling everybody else what to do. Your concern is with rules and regulations and who's obeying them and who's not. It's no accident that the legalistic Pharisees were Jesus' greatest enemy. What Paul is saying here is you and I need to have a vigilant spirit against spiritual cannibalism in the church. It comes into the church whenever you have legalism. You say, Doug, that's good to know. That's helpful. I, I appreciate that but I still struggle. How do I determine what I should and should not do? Well, I want to give you some very practical and relevant bit of advice regarding this whole issue of, of doubtful things. And let me preface it by saying you and I can never live our lives in a vacuum. Everything we do has an impact on other people. Christian as well as non-Christians alike. You know, I really wish we, I, I could just live my life in a cocoon and in a bubble. And, and what I do doesn't have an impact on others. But it does. It has an impact on Connie, my children, my grandchildren. It has an impact on you, the congregation here at Mid-Valley Bible Church. So how is it that I decide what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do? 
We've listed five things for you there in the outline. And our purpose in writing them down was so that you would not miss any of those points. Number one, this is the first guideline. And that is, do nothing that will offend the holy nature of God. That's first and foremost. God is observing your conduct and he's observing mine. And what we think, say, and do has an impact on others. And therefore, God has set out some specific things that we are to do and things that we are not to do. They're called moral absolutes. And those moral absolutes never change. Furthermore, they're binding on on people everywhere and in every culture. You and I are never, never at liberty to choose whether or not we're going to conform ourselves to those moral absolutes. Now, that's not to suggest that these are not questioned and challenged and ignored, even by people who should know better. But the reality is there are certain things in the Scriptures that are not open to debate. Let me mention a couple of them. Friend, it is always, always wrong to engage in any form of sexual immorality. That is an absolute. Any relationship outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is wrong. Period. Additionally, it's wrong to lie. It's wrong to murder. It's wrong to be involved in spiritism and witchcraft and sorcery or astrology. It's wrong to be involved in idolatry. It's wrong to be covetous. It's wrong to be rebellious against God-ordained authority. It's wrong to give offensive speech. It's wrong to sow discord among the brethren. And we could, we could spend the next 30 minutes giving all the moral absolutes and expanding upon them that are found in Scripture. And by the way, this is so important. It's not limited just to outward actions. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? He said, if you get angry with another person, if you harbor resentment towards that person, Jesus says you've committed murder in your heart. He says, if you lust after another woman, men, you've committed adultery in your heart. And in other words, even to to think or harbor a wrong thought is to break one of God's moral absolutes. Now, I will be both, both misunderstood and misquoted, but no one in the church, including the pastor, is allowed his or her own opinion when it comes to the moral absolutes of God. It is incredibly distressing to me to hear people today who claim to be religious and they no longer have a commitment to the sanctity of human life. Friend, the sanctity of human life is one of the moral absolutes in the Bible. And we're not at liberty to question that or to challenge it. So the first guideline is simply this. Do nothing that will offend the holy nature of God. 
And here's the kicker. As broad as those moral absolutes are, and as varied and as seemingly all-encompassing as they may appear, there are scores of other issues out there that are sort of in the gray area. They're neither black nor white. And the question then arises, how then do I conduct myself? Here's the second guideline. A Christian is at liberty to practice or not to practice whatever God's absolutes do not forbid. Let me say that again. A Christian is at liberty to practice or not to practice whatever God's absolutes do not forbid. And there are many issues, many issues that are out there that the Bible doesn't address directly. And right now, some of you are sitting up and you are smiling and you are saying, fantastic, I'm so glad I came to church today. Preach it, Doug! I can now go out and do whatever I please. Oh, this freedom in Christ is so wonderful. Well, friend, before you go too far overboard, let me mention we're only halfway through the guidelines, okay? Because the third guideline is this. In the exercising of our freedom and liberty, we are not to offend the conscience of another Christian. Your Bible is open to Galatians 5. Turn to your left to Acts 14, the passage that we read from. Acts chapter 14. Romans 14. Why did, I, I, I'm in Acts right there. That's the problem. Thank you. You know, I was at a church, big church in Dallas. In fact, it was Swindoll's church. And uh, he made a mistake and, and he said... Be sure to take, correct that in the tape that goes out. We can't do that here, so that's a, that's a mistake that will be there forever. Romans chapter 14. Let me just remind you briefly of the problem that Paul is dealing with here. Back in the first century, the, the taboo of the day was not whether you would go to movies or have a glass of wine or wear makeup or any of those things. The issue of the day was whether or not you would eat meat that was sacrificed on the altar of a pagan god and then sold at a cut-rate price in the marketplace. It was the best meat in town, but the problem was that that meat had been offered to an idol. And the question was, should a Christian go into the marketplace and buy that meat? Now, meat is meat. It's given to be enjoyed. We probably all eat too much of it, but that's okay. But the point is you can still eat it. In fact, look at verse 1. We didn't read this, but in Romans 14 it says, Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling or disputable, over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. Now notice verse 3. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. 
for God has accepted them. Please note that both extremes are to be avoided. Those of you who eat meat, I don't want you looking down on those who don't. And those of you who do, I don't want you to, or, well, you know what I'm trying to say. He's saying, keep the issue to yourself. See verse 4? He says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand before the Lord. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Again, the exhortation is to both sides. Look at verse 12. He says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then he goes on and he says, but what I want you to remember is I don't want you to throw purposefully a stumbling block into the pathway of a, of a Christian who's trying to grow in their walk with God. See verse 13, he says, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. You see, it's not an attitude that says, well, you know, that person just needs to grow up. He needs to get used to it. He needs to stop being such an immature baby Christian. And he may very well be just that. Look at verse 14. He says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. And the principle is clear. If my conduct is going to hurt a brother or sister, if it's going to offend their conscience, don't do it. See verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. He's saying, Christians... Use wisdom. Don't stand on your soapbox and preach liberty and freedom in Christ if it's going to be an offense to a growing Christian who hasn't yet reached that level. One man wrote this, A man must be directed not by what he thinks, but by the thought of what his acts will provoke in the mind of others. To eat meat and to drink wine may please the palate, but the justified man doesn't live to please himself, but to please his neighbor. Now, what Paul goes on in verses 16 through 20 is he gives a fourth guideline. Let's read the verses. Look at verses 16 and following. He says, Therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Now notice carefully verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. 
Here's the fourth guideline. Do nothing that will hinder the work of God. Now, there are certain things that I can do and you can do, and there's nothing in Scripture that is specifically against that. Yet for me to engage in those activities would hinder the effectiveness of my ministry. And no, I'm not going to get any more specific than that. What are my convictions are my convictions. What are your convictions are your convictions. And I'm not going to try to foster upon you what Connie and I have chosen to do as far as our life is concerned. That's between us and the Lord. And the same holds true for you. And if I were to stand up here and outline all of the questionable things that I think you ought not be doing, you know what it would do? It would keep you forever at a state of immaturity. And you would never grow up. You would remain in a state of, of babyhood. And I remember Howard Hendricks at seminary, just the best communicator and teacher I ever, ever sat under. I can remember him telling us so vividly in class after class, he said, there's so many Christians today who are walking around with their spiritual umbilical cord in their hand, and they want to plug it into someone, and they say, make me grow. Tell me what to do. Friend, that's not the way you grow. Your convictions are your convictions. And my convictions are my convictions. And I'm not going to tell anybody what they can or cannot do. Now, just for the sake of clarity, if you are at home, your parents have the right to establish parameters as to your behavior. If you are a student, a school has a right to establish guidelines for conduct. And a person's maturity is determined in part by their willingness to cheerfully obey those rules. Now, there's one final guideline, and that is simply this. Do not offend your own conscience. Don't offend your own conscience. Look at verse 21. He says, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Friend, there are times when you will be somewhere with someone and be doing something, and all of a sudden that conscience, much like your heart after you exercise, begins to beat faster. And all of a sudden it's just thumping away, and you know what it's telling you? Stop. Don't do that. I believe that is God prompting you through his spirit, to not do that. It may not be specifically addressed in Scripture. Others may be able to do it, and that's fine. But for you, it is wrong.
And what's the motive for it all? It's Christian love. In fact, that's what Paul says in verse 14 of Galatians 5. We serve one another with love. And here's the takeaway. True Christian love is more concerned with others and their welfare than our own. In fact, look at the first three verses of Romans 15. He says, we who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves, each of us should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who, of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now friend, you may disagree with what I'm saying this morning, and that's fine. You're at liberty to do so. But friend, my question to you is, is you know, you have to come to your own personal convictions. And I've observed, having been a pastor long enough, that there's a lot of people in, in churches who, who candidly just need to grow up. You've heard my definition of maturity before. It's not original. It comes from Vance Hafner. He said, maturity is being thick-skinned and tender-hearted instead of being thin-skinned and hard-hearted. And some people, when it comes to the whole issue of behavior and what you're going to do and not do, need to get a little thicker hide. That's what maturity is. You maintain a tender heart, but you have a thick skin. Instead of being so thin-skinned, and truth be known, hard-hearted. Let me conclude with four things that I want to remind you of. They all start with BC, okay? So they'll be easily remembered. Number one, be considerate. Be considerate. When you are in the company of others who regard certain things as being wrong, you care enough for that person to say, my concern is for them and not my freedom in Christ, not my liberty. And so I'm just going to forego that. Secondly, be convinced. Know what God's word says on a subject. If you have doubts about certain actions, give them up. But if you in good conscience can engage in things, do it. You have my blessing. Thirdly, be consistent. When you come to the convictions that something is right or something is wrong, unless there is something that is solid to the contrary, don't waver. Doubt will yield to internal condemnation, but consistency brings happiness. And one final point, and that is undergirding everything that I've said this morning is the need to become a Christian. And so if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, I'd invite you to do so. To acknowledge before God that Jesus Christ and Christ alone died on the cross to save you from sin. And you need to put your faith and your trust in him. The Bible says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not walking an aisle, raising a hand, joining a church, or being baptized. It's trusting Jesus Christ. And so we plead with you. Trust Jesus this morning.
Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together in the Word. We as Christians desire to enjoy our freedom and the liberties that you've given to us. And we desire to live out those freedoms to the fullest. And yet we know that your word makes clear that our liberties do have their limits. And help us to realize that if it is enjoyed to the detriment of others that we are to yield. Help us to realize that there are more important issues in life than simply us having the freedom to do what we may be able to do. Help us to realize that there are times when we need to say no to the things that may very well be acceptable, but, Father, would, would hurt other people or harm our testimony or the cause of Jesus Christ. And help us, Father, to understand those limits and to seek to fulfill our liberties to the fullest by walking in the Spirit and being governed by the Word of God. We pray that you would seal these truths to our heart this morning, for together we've asked it in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.